So he wanted to uh, set up this visual demonstration to illustrate his sermon. And so he lined up four jars in front of the pulpit and uh, he placed a worm into each container. And uh, in the first worm, uh, sorry, the first worm he put into this container that was full of alcohol. The second worm he put into a container full of cigarette smoke. Uh, The third worm he went into a, a container of chocolate syrup. And the fourth worm went into a jar of good, clean soil. And uh, at the conclusion of the sermon, the minister uh, reports the following results, that the worm in alcohol is dead, the worm in the cigarette smoke is dead, the worm in the chocolate syrup is dead, and the worm in the earth is doing fine. And uh, he asked the congregation, what can we learn from this demonstration? And uh, a lady in the back quickly puts her hand up. She says, um, she says, as long as you drink, smoke, or eat chocolate, you'll never have worms. I saw some worried faces during that one. People like, where is he going to go with this? Our Bible passage today, it's not about soil or worms, but it is about lessons that we can learn from Jesus, um, lessons about life and meaning and happiness. And, and we're going to see that as we explore the story of one woman who met Jesus, her encounter with Jesus. Because for her, meeting Jesus changed everything she understood about finding satisfaction and fulfillment. Uh, So why don't we pray that God will teach us the same lessons as we open His Word now. Uh, Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Bible. We thank You for the record of Jesus' words and His teachings. Help us now to hear and understand Your words to us. Uh, May it not go over our heads, but may it go into our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are in the middle of our sermon series called Encounters with Jesus. It's all about people who... Uh, met Jesus and how they were changed by it. And our encounter starts today with Jesus on a journey. Um, He's traveling from the south of Israel, from Judah, and he's traveling all the way back up um, to his northern hometown of Galilee. It's a journey of 70 miles, uh, and Jesus was going to walk this journey. He'd made the journey many times, probably every single year, at least once or twice, when he went from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem for festivals and things like that. Uh, This time he was leaving the south, though, and moving back north because there was tension. Uh, There was tension with the Jewish leaders, the religious authorities. Um, Jesus, he was baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And uh, safe to say, Jesus decided it would be better to put some distance between himself and, well, that critical uh, voice. So the obvious route from Judea to Galilee is you just go straight north. You just go straight up the road. But there was a complication with this journey. Uh, Travelling directly from Judea to Galilee meant going through Samaria. And uh, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get along. Uh, We know that from history, and we know it from our Bible passage here. Look at verse 9. In the brackets, it says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Um, See, Samaria, once upon a time, it had been part of God's promised land, had been part of God's Old Testament people. And that all changed in 700 or so B.C., when uh, the Assyrian army came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and they exported, they exiled, they took away most of the population. Uh, There were a few people still left there. Uh, And the way the Assyrians kept control over the lands that they conquered like this, what they would do is, um, kind of like putting things in a blender, I guess, they blended people from each of the different countries that they had overtaken. So they brought back some people from another country and some other people from another, and another country and another country. And so Samaria becomes this mishmash of cultures and religions of all the people who were resettled there. 
And that was the start of some very bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the animosity was so bad that many Jews would actually avoid Samaria altogether. They'd cross to the other side of the Jordan and uh, travel up on the east coast through the uh, eastern cities. We need to keep that in our mind as the story unfolds. So Jesus, he decides he's not going to go the the long way. He's going straight through Samaria. Uh, In fact, in verse 4, it says he had to go through Samaria. I wonder what that means. Um, I'm not sure that I know the answer. Perhaps we'll find out in the story. Well, in verse 5, he arrives at this place called Sychar, and he stops at Jacob's well. This well well had great significance for God's people, for the Jewish people. Jacob, he was one of the patriarchs, he was one of the forefathers of the Jewish uh, people, Um, and Jacob had given this plot of land to Joseph, and Joseph's bones were eventually buried there after 400 years, and well, this was a landmark place for Jews to stop at, a place to stop on the journey, a place to drink, and a place to remember the story of how God had provided for His people. Just saying about God's faithfulness, didn't we? Provides in all seasons. Well, Jesus is hot and tired. Uh, It's the sixth hour, it's midday, uh, it's noon, and He's probably been traveling since dawn, been walking for six hours. So He sits down by the well, and... uh, Soon a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Um, To you and me, this scene looks like uh, two people at a well, doesn't it? Just, can you give me a drink? But to the audience at the time, this this scene, when they see Jesus and a woman at the well, uh, Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well, this would have raised all kinds of questions. Uh, First, in the Old Testament, um, there's a stereotype or, or fantastic trope about men and women meeting at wells. Um, In our last sermon series, you might remember, um, Isaac found his wife, Rebecca, at a well, or his servant went for him. Uh, They met the wife at the well. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, also met his wife at a well. Well, he met her at this particular well, where Jesus was now standing. And so we start to think, is Jesus going to meet a wife? Is Is that what's happening here? The second thing is that the original audience would have noticed how this goes against social conventions. Um, In their culture at the time, men and women didn't uh, talk to strangers of the opposite sex. They just didn't talk to them. In fact, they wouldn't even make eye contact. It was inappropriate. Um, It was improper. And, uh, you know, it would say something about the woman and her morality if she engaged men in this conversation. To make things worse, Jesus, he's all alone. He doesn't have a chaperone. All of the disciples, they've gone into town to buy some lunch. says that in verse 8. And the woman, well, she's all alone too. Uh, Normally, the women would go to the well together at dusk to get water for the animals. Uh, They'd go as a group. It was partly how they stayed safe in that place. Uh, But today, she's there, and it's the middle of the day. And there are no other women with her. And so you wonder, perhaps she's the sort of woman who meets unaccompanied men at wells in the daytime. Maybe there's another reason why she's not there with the other women. Uh, Let's read on to find out. Um, Then there's the other thing that the original audience would have noticed, that question of the Samaritan versus Jew, that ethnic tension that was there in verse 9. The woman, she brings it up straight away in verse 9. She says, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Uh, In fact, in the original, it's even more stark. It's, you're a Jewish man, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you possibly ask me for a drink? Uh, If this was a movie scene, we'd certainly wonder what was about to happen. What happens? They have a conversation about water. 
<laughs> That's what happens. Uh, verse 9, she says, how can you ask me for a drink? And so Jesus says in verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Uh, for a tired, thirsty guy, Jesus thinks pretty well. Don't know about you, but when I'm dehydrated, I'm terrible. But Jesus says, he turns the question back on the woman. He says, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. And I would have given you living water. And she's confused. Verse 11, she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. In other words, you don't have a bucket. People normally brought a little leather bucket. You don't have anything to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And she's thinking he was talking about physical water. Um, living water is another way of saying spring water. It was the same expression, spring water. Uh, water which bubbles up from underground, uh, always fresh and cool as opposed to uh, stagnant water which sits on the surface and gets fouled by animals and birds. Um, Jacob's well, it was a spring. It still is, in fact. You can still go there today. Um, it's a deep well, about 100 feet deep, uh, and it's been a reliable source of water for about 4,000 years. Amazing. And so the woman, she kind of makes a joke with Jesus, I think, in verse 12. She says, so uh, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well to drink from himself, this reliable well? He gave it to us to drink. He gave it to his sons and to his flocks. And so do you think you're better than Jacob? Huh. Well, she doesn't think that Jesus can do better than the water from this well. But Jesus, he wasn't talking about physical water. Look at verse 13. He says, everybody who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I, give in, uh, that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She's still thinking about physical water. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. She doesn't want to have to leave town every day to get water for herself and for animals. Um, a few years ago, Joe and I were in Tanzania. We were um, on our way to safari in the Serengeti. And uh, one of the stops along the way was this fantastic volcanic crater called Ngorogoro Crater. Who's been there? It's pretty amazing. You might have seen pictures. Uh, this crater is um, 12 miles wide. It's about 2,000 feet deep. And uh, inside, as you drop into this crater, it's this lush, green uh, paradise full of wildlife. There's the big five in there. There are lions and zebras and wildebeests and elephants. There's a couple of black rhinos. Um, uh, there are hippos in this fantastic hippo pool. Um, it's incredible. You're, when you go down to the floor of this crater, 12 miles wide, you can imagine, um, just surrounded by 2,000 feet sheer walls. They're not sheer, but pretty steep on either side. What's also about, amazing about Ngorogoro is that um, it is surrounded by a landscape that is basically a wasteland. Um, as you drive in there, it's this bone-dry desert surface, red dirt. It looks like the surface of the moon, and it's due to overgrazing by the, lo of the local tribesmen and their cattle. Um, it's this super stark contrast. You have this dry dust on top, and then the green as you drop into the volcano. Um, and so Ngorogoro is very important to the tribesmen um, because it's their water source for the cattle. And uh, every day, the tribesmen, they're allowed to walk down with the cattle down the 2,000-foot 2000 wall of the crater to bring their herds to drink. They're allowed to stay for one hour, and then they have to walk out again. 
back out into the desert. Can you imagine for them that idea of water that you could drink and never be thirsty again? You'd never have to walk down that trail for such a short time and such a short drink. So unsatisfying. Uh, Water is crucial to so many people, to all of us, um, in a place like Tanzania, in a place like the Napa Valley, in a place like Israel. But Jesus, he wasn't talking about physical water, was he? Um, This metaphor, really, it went straight over the Samaritan woman's head. Um, Jesus was talking about something spiritual, spiritual water that quenches your soul's thirst. It's a gift from God that satisfies your soul because it's the gift of eternal life, verse 14. Spiritual water that brings you to life spiritually, sustains you spiritually, quenches your thirst spiritually. I was thinking about the prayers that I pray. Uh, You might be like me. You know, we can ask God for all sorts of physical needs in our prayers, uh, and that's okay. But Jesus reminds us that there is more to life than the physical. You may not see God, but He is there. He's been filling Jacob's well with spring water for 4,000 years. But more importantly, God has been there filling souls with the living water of eternal life. As people hear and respond to Jesus. Do you know, if you knew who Jesus was, if you knew who Jesus was today, and if you knew the gift that this living water is, then you would ask Jesus, you would ask Him, and He would give it to you if you understood Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Because people drink from so many other wells trying to find satisfaction. They drink from other fountains trying to find satisfaction. There's the the fountain of wealth. The fountain of wealth that promises so much, but it costs you every waking moment to pursue it. And, And then it keeps you awake at nighttime worrying about it as well. And when you do get to, when do you get to enjoy your wealth? However much you have, you'll always want more. Wealth will never satisfy. There's the fountain of other people's approval. You know, when you find your value and your worth from people affirming your work or your personality or your physique or your social media account or, you know, you can never please everybody all the time. It's impossible. If you try to find your satisfaction from other people and from other people's approval, it will always disappoint. Uh, And then there are other fountains that people are drinking from to try and find satisfaction and meaning in life. Here's the fountain of happiness the fountain of health, the fountain of youth, the fountain of sex, they're all fickle and they're all elusive. They can never satisfy. See, Jesus says to the woman in verse 16, he says, go and call your husband and come back. And it turns out she didn't have a husband. Actually, she's had five husbands and she's not married to the man that she's with now. This is a woman with a thirst to be loved. That never seems to work out. Perhaps she's embarrassed. Perhaps she doesn't want to be caught out in the sin of adultery. The Samaritans, they were religious. They followed part of the Jewish scriptures. And so she tries to keep it a secret. But Jesus, he knows all about her. Even though he's never met her, he knows exactly who she is. Let's pause on the story for a moment. Because what do we expect to come next? You know, if you were writing this story for yourself, would you expect judgment, moralizing, at least? Surely Jesus will say something about the five husbands. If they were even husbands, surely he's going to tell her to stop sinning. But he doesn't. Read all the way to the end of the chapter. He never judges her. It's kind of perplexing. It's certainly unexpected. Jesus says nothing. And actually, the conversation switches to worship. Um, She says to Jesus in verse 19, she says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that 
the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Maybe it was just her way of changing the subject. Or maybe she wants to engage Jesus in a more spiritual conversation. She says that they've got things in common. They both worship the same God, although the Samaritans worship in one place and the Jews worshiped in another place. And they said that you could only worship in Jerusalem. That was one of the big sticking points between Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus says, actually, the time is coming when neither of those ways of worshiping will be relevant anymore. This mountain, that mountain, they won't matter. You worship in the Jerusalem temple. Well, Jesus, in chapter 2 of John, he'd already talked about destroying the temple. This new way of worship, Jesus says in verse 23 and 24, it's to worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. What does that mean to worship in the Spirit and in truth? Well, um, I did a Google search image, a Google image search. Have you ever done that? A Bible verse, people love to make a picture in a Bible verse. So I did a Google image search for this verse and pretty much every internet um, picture has worship hands in the air. And so according to the internet, to worship in Spirit and truth, it means singing with your hands up. Um, I love it, but I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Um, See, he says in verse 24 that God is spirit. So he tells us that God is spirit. God doesn't have a physical body. He's a spiritual being rather than material. And so the material place of worship is irrelevant. Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, worshiping in a a chapel, worshiping in a cathedral. In Africa, I've worshiped under a tent in a field. It just doesn't matter because worship is a matter of spirit, not a matter of the material place you're in. And of course, as we read on in John, Jesus will make this idea even clearer. He says that he's going to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to believers so that God would dwell in us by faith. We become the temple of God. It means that we can worship God wherever we are from the heart and not just when we're in a certain place or doing certain things. And so, Worship, it's not about music or or liturgy or religious ceremonies. Worship is about connecting with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit and truth. And this woman by the well, it's fantastic. She grasps the truth. Jesus opens her eyes and she gets it. She tells Jesus that she's been waiting for the Messiah who would come and explain these things. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the Messiah. Well, there are some huge ideas in this passage, and it would be easier for them to go over our heads. Um, So I want to bring it down to earth to finish with two ideas. Um, I think there are two times in life when you don't want to meet Jesus. Here are the two times, I think, when you don't want to meet Jesus. The first is you don't want to meet Jesus when you're caught out in sin. You know, you you might have something going on in your life uh, right now, something that's hidden, something that was, if it was exposed, uh, it would be devastating. And kind of the last thing you want is for Jesus to tap you on the shoulder and to say, I know everything. Well, here's the thing. Jesus didn't respond to the woman with judgment, did he? Um, Instead, he responds to her with love um, and compassion and understanding and forgiveness. And Jesus does this because Jesus is the Father's Son. Jesus is just like his heavenly Father. And God is loving and God is compassionate and God is merciful and God is forgiving. In the chapter before this, John 3, 17, we read that God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn, but to save. God wants to save us, and he wants to save you. You know, in the media, God is often portrayed as judgmental and hateful and immoral and unloving. But here, in Jesus Christ, God shows his true disposition towards people. 
It's love. So you may not want to meet Jesus right now because of sin in your life, but this passage teaches us that this is exactly the time when you need to meet Jesus, when you're weighed down with sin because you need Jesus for salvation. You're thirsty spiritually and you need relief and only God can soothe your thirst with the cool water of forgiveness that wells up into eternal life. Uh, What about the second time that you don't want to meet Jesus? Well, I think the second time in life that you don't want to meet Jesus is when you don't feel thirsty. Um, Many of us don't feel thirsty. Uh, You know, we feel satisfied already. You know, we feel satisfied with life. We feel satisfied with family. We feel satisfied with our friends. You might even feel satisfied with the comfort of church attendance and the kind of the rhythm of church life. And you're so satisfied that maybe, maybe just, you actually don't even really feel like you need God anymore to quench that thirst. And I say this really carefully and with love because it's a tendency that I think I could fall into myself. You see, Jesus says that true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And only you know if your worship is true, but, but just say I'm right. And say that somewhere along the way, God has kind of dropped out of the picture for you. Jesus has kind of dropped out of the picture for you. Um, God has kind of shrunk down and shrunk down and shrunk down out of your daily life so that he's maybe not even really a part of it, if you're honest with yourself. Um, So I'm talking to to Christian people here, people who follow Jesus. Um, Brother and sister, you might not want Jesus because you're comfortable without him, but, but you know what? You need him. You might not want him standing over your shoulder. But if you're not worshipping with Jesus, then you're worshipping something else. You might be worshipping family or fitness or status or wealth or happiness or experiences. But none of those things will save you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus can quench your soul's thirst. And only Jesus can give you life to the full. If you go to the very last chapter of the Bible, I love this. And the Bible closes with this image of heaven. Um, and heaven is portrayed as a city. And in the middle of the city, is the, there's the throne of God and there's the throne of Jesus. And flowing out from the thrones is this river of life. And um, it's, such a, it's such a lush river that on both sides of the river is the tree of life. And it bears fruit every single month, 12 harvests in a year. It's this image of abundance and uh, life because of God's presence. And in the midst of it, Jesus speaks. He's speaking to us now. Jesus says this. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anybody who desires, let them drink freely from the water of life. It's the water that he offered that woman that day. It's the water that he's offering us today. The water of life that springs up to eternal life. Are you thirsty? Then come to Jesus and encounter this living water yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the fountain of life. You are the fountain of forgiveness. You're the fountain of living water that quenches our thirst. May we not find our thirst satisfied in other places, but may we come to you and drink deeply from Jesus and find our souls satisfied in him. Lord, we just pray today that you would, by your Holy Spirit, reveal this truth to us to every person in this room, to every person watching online and listening on the podcast. Lord, we pray that you would reveal this truth in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.